Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on October 20th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. If you've taken a look at the October issue of Scientific American magazine or at our website, you may have noticed some big changes in appearance, not to mention content. Editor-in-Chief Marriott DeCristina and I talked about the new look and direction of the magazine and website, as well as about some fascinating results of a poll of the readers. Scientific American looks very different. What's going on? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask, Steve. Like, I couldn't wait to come and, and talk to you about how Scientific American looks different this month. Um, you know, it's not your great-great-grandfather's Scientific American. I was thinking about that the other day because we, we talked not that long ago about celebrating our 165th anniversary. And Scientific American, over that 165 years, has had many faces and this you could see as a, an evolutionary change of Scientific American. It is very much still your Scientific American for you readers. And it may remind you of, in fact, some past issues in certain ways. And in other ways, we've livened it up. Because just like animals evolve over time to survive, Scientific American has, over its 165 years, evolved over time. When it started, it was a newspaper it that came out every sheet. week. A big broadsheet. Yeah. And it was all hand-engraved images and handset type. And these days, our articles are beautifully rendered color informational graphics. And then when you go to the website, there are interactive pieces and video and podcasts like this. What's the purpose of changing the look other than, well, what you might do in your home where you say, you know what? I'm just sick of looking at that kitchen. Let's <laughs> let's put in a new kitchen. Well, every so often, you know, you're, it's not just that you're sick of looking at the kitchen, but that you outgrow the kitchen, let's say, or your needs change. And in the same fashion for magazines or for any publication, you try to keep an eye on the reader's needs, right? Those people who live in your magazine kitchen, let's call it. And what they are expecting and needing from the magazine, and I think it would be shocking to anybody if Scientific American was still printed and only printed on a broadsheet in handset type with hand-carved engravings. So these days, if the magazine looks a little different, that is just part of a continuous evolution of change to better serve the reader's needs. But it it also is a little different besides just looking a little yeah. different. Yeah. Let me back up for a minute. Now, naturally, being a science magazine, we're evidence-based. So we started about a year ago asking questions of readers, and we asked them in a variety of ways. We asked them in things called focus groups where people sit around a table and talk about the magazine. We asked them in surveys. We even did something for the cover of this issue, uh, working with a company named Affinova, called um, an evolutionary – we used an evolutionary algorithm to test the covers, and I can, I can tell you more about that. So we went through a series of processes to try to find out what do readers need from the magazine today, and how can it, while still being true to Scientific American, an authoritative voice in science coverage for low these 165 years, and at the same time move to the next level in service of those reader needs. So you're right. There are some changes visually – um, I think mainly typeface and, and layout design, but you'll still find the kinds of highly detailed, terrific explanatory informational graphics, for instance, in the magazine. I think they look a little nicer than they have before, but people use these for, they use them, teachers use them in classrooms. I know our scientists, authors like to use them in their PowerPoints <laughs> later. We often see them turn up in other meetings, which is delightful. So those are still the same. So there are things that are 
quite the same and that you may recognize. And there are things that are a little different. And the things that are a little different are some a little bit in the feature well and a little bit in the in the departments, those monthly sections that we run. Let me start with the feature well. One of the things we learned from research is that the readers love our in-depth articles, but they also wanted some variety. They wanted some things that were longer and shorter so that if they maybe had a little less time one day, they could dive into one article, and if they had more time another day, they could dive into another. So while you'll still find those long, in-depth pieces from the scientists, you also will find some shorter, some different styles of articles that you've maybe not seen as frequently in the past. Well, when, in the old Scientific American, when you got to the feature section, there were a series of articles, each of which was 3,000 words. Right, or eight were, pages right. for, for readers who don't count up the words. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> and, now it's going to be more of a of a mix in there. Right. And the the feature article well is a little as we call it a well, the fe- the feature article area is a little bit longer than it used to be and it has a greater variety of lengths of articles. So some are two pages, some are eight, some maybe 10. We're trying to fit the article to the the topic to the article size rather than just maybe making everything the same length. And one of the hallmarks of this magazine has been its authorities in our pages, the the scientist authors. Right, and that continues obviously to be true, uh, both the authors that write for us and those scientists who advise us, who are on our advisory panel. And we are mixing in some more journalists too. Well, yeah, I think journalists can tell stories that are not easy for scientists to tell. For example. We would typically go to the top authorities, let's say the Nobel Prize winner or the head of uh, an important lab, to write about his or her discipline in a particular category. That's great if the story is just about that discipline. But let's say you need to talk with a variety of experts to get the true picture and do an analysis. That, That requires a lot of reporting legwork or a lot of calls and travel and so on. And we found that that's not an easy thing for scientists to do for a couple of reasons. First, they're not trained as reporters, and you can't expect them to be. Goodness knows they're trained in so many other things and can't be reporters too. And secondly... Um, it's it's hard for scientists to try to call other scientists in the way a reporter can and then weave those pieces together because other scientists are thinking, why are you calling me? You know what we do. So it's a little it's it's just a little tricky for them to tell that kind of story. And for those we have turned to journalists for well, well, more than fifteen years now, twenty maybe, and we are doing that again in our pages as well. There's a definite attempt to make the information in Scientific American more accessible to more people. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think for, for many years, Scientific American had the reputation of being very authoritative and serious and credible and trustworthy, but very, very tedious to read. And we learned from the readers that they wanted a little bit more lively prose in there. Now, we work with the scientists, certainly, very closely to make that happen, and they're wonderful about trying to cooperate, because it's really hard, I think, to take your your discipline's terms, which are the most accurate thing to use, and try to dial it down a bit for the layperson. But we believe that you can do that in a way that is quite respectful to the science and also quite respectful to your audience, who shouldn't have to have eight years of training just to read an article in Scientific American. A few years ago, I was walking down the street in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And we had, you know, this is a process with Scientific American that's been going on for a little over a decade, actually, 
where we, we're becoming – the way I think of it is we're becoming more accessible. And I ran into two very senior scientists. I don't mean they were super old. I mean they were really accomplished. One of them was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. And uh, and I, I'd met them both before. And one of them said, what's going on at, at the magazine? It's very different. And I said, yeah, well, you know, we're we're changing the magazine in keeping with the – the demands of the readers and and the demands of of as you said evolution are you know we we need to make some changes to to stay alive and uh, one of them said boy am i glad you're changing it and i said really that's interesting because some readers complain and he said i could not read the articles that were not in my field and this is a world class scientist telling me this so that indicated to me that the old scientific american which i know a lot of people loved uh but it indicated it had gone a little too far in a certain direction where some of the articles were just impenetrable. Well, let's talk about the old Scientific American just for a minute. I mean, I, I flashed back to the newspaper era of Scientific American, but let me flash forward because I think when a lot of people are thinking of the old Scientific American, they're thinking of the magazine with Dennis Flanagan and Gerard Peel. And I have to tell you, as somebody who has read many of those issues that people often speak fondly of, they were extremely accessible. They were very comprehensible. They were actually delightful to read. And visitors to the scientificamerican.com website, it's very different looking there, too. It is. One of the nice things about this redesign is it applied both to the printed edition of the magazine and also to the website, so that whenever you come to any Scientific American experience, you have a similar one. And... The website also offers a couple of new bells and whistles that I enjoy. First of all, to make it easier for readers to know what's the top stuff for the day, we have this uh, feature at the top left called Today's Science Agenda, which when we tested it with readers, they just love the idea. It tells you what are, what are the three to five, let's say, top things of the day, you know, the top science stories. We also have a, our usual news feed right next to it. We have um, a new multimedia player so that if you want to watch a video, you don't have to go over to some other area of the site to play it. It'll play it right in the front and For the podcast. Steve, your podcast. I know that it's a much better player. You can just click on it. It's You can navigate within the podcast much more easily than you used to um, – even if you're just streaming it without downloading it. It's a big improvement on the format there. And I have I've actually lots of other plans to continue to improve the website as the months go on, so stay tuned on that. One of the things in this uh, first issue of, of The New Look is some polling data, which readers might find interesting. And they can they can find it on, on the web. They can find it in the pages of the magazine. But let's talk about it for a minute. Right. So readers can actually see this whole story up right now on scientificamerican.com. And, and what happened is this. Some months ago, Scientific American became part of the Nature Publishing Group, which is Nature and the other um, Nature Journals. And we thought it would be really an interesting experiment to do a poll together to see how would our readers respond to questions, what, what would be of interest to them and le- of less interest. And Scientific American also has 14 foreign language editions, so local language editions, we call them, located a lot of them in Europe and all around the world. And we thought it would be even more fun not only to partner with Nature on this, but also with those 14 foreign language editions. And we thought, I remember back in May, I was at one of our uh, twice-a-year international meetings 
what would be a fun topic to do for our readers? What would they find interesting? And the topic we came up with was attitudes about science, public attitudes about science. What are things that we, we feel good about with science? What are things we trust less? So we came up with a slew of questions, brainstormed them with the, the editors of other editions, so around the world, worked with nature, and we had scientists evaluate our questions, and then we posted them online, not just at Scientific American and Nature, but also through those other editions, and we translated this into 14 different languages. We had uh, some 20,000, 21,000 people participate in this survey, which was only open for a couple of weeks, and we had them participate from 18 countries around the world. And so it's an interesting, it's a poll. It's not quote-unquote scientific. We did not um, randomize it. We did not go to specific people. These are self-selected participants, which is clear in our, our article. But in terms of attitudes of people who are visitors to those websites and those publications, it was very interesting and destructive. And so the title of the article is In Science We Trust. And we ask people things like, um, how much do you trust what scientists say about various topics? For instance, in our crowd at least, evolution is an area where most of our reading public trust what scientists have to say about it. It actually is the, the, the top one. The top one, which <laughs> kind of cracks me up considering <laughs> what we deal with all the time. And, uh, you know, on the other end of things, our respondents uh, – trusted scientists much less on flu pandemics, which you can understand why, because our audience understands that some of the flu predictions made last year about H1N1 didn't quite come to pass. And they remember that and apparently holding a, you know, maybe not a grudge about it, but they, they remembering it and, and thinking, well, maybe I can trust them less about this particular topic. There is a certain cry wolf feel that people may get, although Every virologist I've ever spoken to says that that pandemic is coming eventually, right. just like a, a big California earthquake is coming. Will it be next year? Probably not. Right. Will it be in the next hundred years? Probably. And honestly, as a member of the media, I can't really blame the scientists because it's not their fault how their message is broadcast right. I mean, as by we mainstream saw, media. Right. We saw in, in my column last month uh, these poor seismologists in Italy – have been threatened with legal action because they did not specifically predict an earthquake in which a couple hundred people died. So there's a there's a misunderstanding of what scientists are able to precisely predict. Right. In a way, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. Mm -hmm. We assume that they know so much, they should know it to perfection. But you know, fr frankly, scientists don't work in a perfect world, just like none of us does. And um, a couple of other just really quick things about this poll, which I, I think readers should go and, and check out. Um, respondents agreed that investment in science may not have immediate payoffs for the economy, but lays the foundation for future growth. More than 89% of our respondents felt that way. They also felt, more than 70% of them felt that science, even in tough economic times, science budgets should be retained. And they thought that uh, defense spending, for one, should be cut. Now, I'm I can see this view now that one fifth of our national budget or thereabouts is defense spending. What else in the in the polling came? Anything coming as a surprise in the polling? Well, to me, it was the big shocker that that people um, not only trusted scientists about evolution, but there was another question we asked: 
Do you believe uh, or do you agree with scientists more now than a year ago or less now than a year ago about the following topics? And despite all the hullabaloo over climate change and the failure of policy leaders to grapple with this issue, believe it or not, our respondents were more convinced today than a year ago that climate change is a reality. That That was was, a surprise. That was really interesting. I think it was... Uh, by three to one, if your mind had changed about climate change, it was three to one that you were more likely to accept climate change as reality. And uh, again, this is a very select group of respondents. But even there, that's kind of that's kind of a, an unexpected finding. Yeah, to me it was. But it also shows to me the kinds of readers that we have and that nature has in our other editions and others who – aren't maybe steady readers, but just come to Scientific American now and again, are the kinds of people who are following the evidence. And as the evidence continues to unspool about climate change, there is more and more evidence in favor of it. So I'm not in, – in that way, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised. Yeah, maybe some people who had not really given it much thought before were attracted to the issue because of the so-called climate gate email uh, debacle. business. Yeah, debacle. And uh, – after doing the requisite research related to that, realized that uh, the science actually did support the idea of not only climate change, but man-made climate change. And um, elsewhere in the issue, we, we also tuned up a few of the departments, which I wanted to mention really quickly. One thing people have often told us is that um, Scientific American provides a lot of great information about the science, but it's also helpful to know what are important policy areas that science should science or scientists can inform? So we created a, a section called Agenda, which is in the front of the magazine, where the board of editors provide some commentary and analysis on policy issues that intersect with science, where science can inform what policy leaders may choose to do. And as a counterpoint to that, or maybe not a counterpoint is not the right, but a complement to it, is a a new essay area called Forum, where we invite experts, scientists, and and others to come in and and comment about areas of of their interest and expertise. So there are two places in the magazine now where if you're looking for a snapshot of what the science says related to a particular policy area, these are, you know, easy to digest places to go find that. We also learned in our reader research that readers are are kind of fascinated more than ever about the science behind health. And there's plenty of health news out there, and a lot of it is of the everyday headline variety. You know, today, uh, drink resveratrol from in wine so that you can – tomorrow, we, we're less sure about that. Where, where those um, articles seem to fall down for the average reader – is they don't really give you the science or the more complete knowledge behind there. And so we created a column called The Science of Health, which is being headed up by Christine Gorman, formerly of Time magazine. And we also created a column for the people who would like to know how technology is affecting our modern life. You know, it affects us so much and how we relate to the world, called Technophiles, which is by David Pogue, also of The New York Times. Last, we revamped the front of the magazine in a section called Advances, which provides if, – if if you don't have a lot of time and you want to know the best, most interesting science and technology of the month, turn to Advances, and it will capture all that for you in a, in a very easy-to-digest format. And Shermer and I have survived. <laughs> Shermer and you have survived. Apparently, the readers still want you. So you can still find Michael Shermer's skeptics column, and uh, my anti-gravity is toward the back of the magazine. 
The always entertaining 50, 100, and 150 years ago column is now in the back of the magazine. And uh, this this may or may not resonate with people, but in, in October of 1860, Scientific American wrote, A child who has been boxed up six hours in school might spend the next four hours in study, but it is impossible to develop the child's intellect in this way. The laws of nature are inexorable. By dint of great and painful labor, the child may succeed in repeating a lot of words, like a parrot, but with the power of its brain all exhausted, it is out of the question for it to really master and comprehend its lessons. The effect of the system is to enfeeble the intellect even more than the body. We never see a little girl staggering home under a load of books or knitting her brow over them at 8 o'clock in the evening without wondering what our citizens do not arm themselves at once with carving knives, pokers, clubs, paving stones, or any weapons at hand and chase out the managers of our common schools as they would wild beasts that were devouring their children. I think there are a lot of parents who still feel that way about the managers of their schools. Yeah, actually, I got to say, you know, one of the things the the Obama administration is particularly concerned about these days is education in the schools. And I don't know if we need pitchforks to solve that and and weapons, but um, it's it's something that's on everybody's mind. And it may be that people would like a uh, maybe a modicum of return to the to the uh, ten hours a day that the article talks about of. Laborious study for school children. Well, I do have something to add about that, actually. I mean, first of all, one thing about learning is it is good to have spaces in between your learning. So those kids should get a break, send them outside to play for a little while before they have to do that work. But the second thing is another way to enrich learning, especially about science and technology or things that we find maybe kids may find a little abstract or uh, potentially a little challenging to them is to experience it outside the classroom. And I had a, I, I was, yesterday I was in Washington, D.C. for a press conference for the U.S. Science and Engineering Festival. And here's a way to take that interest in science and encourage it in a different format, a more interactive one that can, uh, can definitely help inspire and, um, and delight and help these kids learn more about science, math, engineering. And if you read E.O. Wilson's autobiography, E.O. Wilson, the great uh, entomologist, ent- yeah, right, not etymologist, entomologist. entomologist. I always have to think about it, and uh, and coincidentally, wordsmith. And he talks about his unstructured childhood in the South, and and the hours he spent outside, just exploring nature by himself, and and observing, and and thinking about things, and figuring things out. And that's a completely different kind of education than the rote learning memorization education that this 1860 article of ours does bemoan. Right. And it's amazing to me, too, how locked in we are to the 1860 concepts of rote memorization, learning to teaching to the test, so-called. And I just want to add one other thing for the listeners. Mind Scientific American Minds uh, had an article in the September-October issue called the To Touch is to Learn. It's about the physical qualities, how touching and manipulating things can help you learn. So again, if you get not just sitting and, you know, the poor girl with the furrowed barrow trying to absorb all those facts, but if you engage in learning in different ways, going out to things like the U.S. Science and Engineering Festival, which will be on the mall, or manipulating things in the classroom, you can learn a lot more and the kids will be a lot more inspired. Uh-huh. 
Well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back very soon with a totally bogus quiz and another full new episode. Meanwhile, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find the Scientific American Nature poll results Marriott and I talked about. Just search for In Science We Trust. Speaking of nature, here's Carrie Smith with a look at the next nature podcast. This week we discover that fat dads can give their daughters health problems, peer at the most distant galaxy ever seen, and find out which cities are best for science. All that and more on the Nature Podcast. Find it on iTunes or at nature.com slash podcast. And follow Scientific American on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 